Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the Beta Bay podcast. I'm your host, Seb Fry, and for this episode of the podcast, I'm very pleased to welcome Chris Grindy as my guest. Chris owns and operates Grindy Tax Service in San Jose, California. This is a family-run business. They've actually been in business for just about 75 years now. That's pretty incredible. They're located very conveniently right in the heart of San Jose. I was pleased to be able to go to the office, sit down with Chris, and have a good long chat about taxes, mostly as they relate to real estate. You know, one of the big things about having a house are the different tax advantages uh, that come with owning property. There's a lot of things that you need to know if you really want to take the best advantage you possibly can of the tax code if you own real property. And the thing is that it's always changing, right? Like the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, uh, which Trump passed uh, along with the Republican Congress in 2017, which took effect in 2018, totally upended the uh, calculus for uh, owning real estate for many people in California. So we talked quite a bit about that and many other hot topics like uh, tax deferred exchanges, vacation rentals, depreciation, uh, investment property, all kinds of great stuff. We took a, a real deep dive into taxation issues um, just in general and around real estate in particular. I learned a ton and I know you will too. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and listen to what Chris Grindy has to say. Hey Chris, how you doing? I'm, I'm doing good. So thank you so much for having me over to your office today. I really appreciate it. Hey, I'm glad to have you here. Uh, what would you like to know? Well, uh, you know, I like to start my podcast by having the guest tell me a little story. Do you have like a little story you can share with us about, you know, who is Chris Grandy or some little nugget from your past that kind of give us a feeling for who you are and what you're about? So I grew up right here in San Jose. Uh, this building that's our office now has been here since I was born. Um, and I used to run around here and cause all kinds of trouble. Went to high school at Lee High School. Uh, loved playing chess. Loved driving my car. Playing Dungeons and Dragons with friends. Um, running cross country. Just doing a bunch of stuff. But didn't really have a target, a goal in my life. Um, went down to the Army recruiter's office with my best friend. He went into the Army recruiter's office. I went next door to the Navy recruiter and took took the took the ASVAB test, took the test. Oh, I took that in high school. Yeah. Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery Test. And I didn't remember what it was called. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> so I went in the Navy. They, they offered me a job in the nuclear power program. They wanted me to do the same thing. Wow. So we're parallel lives here, almost. I didn't go to Lee High School, though. Okay. So, so I did that. I did that for 20 years. I actually went from the nuclear power program into um, physical security in the military, learned how to be a, basically a police officer in the military, um, thought about coming out of that and being part of FEMA um, because I knew about engineering, I knew about physical security, I knew how to develop all of that stuff. Um, didn't go work for FEMA because I figured out that I'd be away from home more than I was away from home in the military. Had four kids by that point in time. Uh, I married somebody from um, that I had actually met on the senior trip in high school, San Francisco River uh, Cruise. Uh, met her when we were 
crossing underneath the Golden Gate. You know, so, um, but uh, so I still did engineering though, became a land surveyor. Um, did that for a couple years, but I had an opportunity while I was in the Navy to learn about taxes. Um, the, the Navy partners with the Internal Revenue Service to do what's called VITA, uh, Voluntary Income Tax Assistance. And it's not just the Navy, um, it's an IRS program, but it was free training. Free training and learn how to do taxes. So I learned how to do taxes, which is a family business. It's been a family business for since 1941. My father was in the Navy. My grandfather was in the Navy. So I'm a Jimmy Buffett son, son of a son of a sailor. Um, when the housing market took a dive, I'm sure you remember that. I do remember that. I came and work, started working full time here at the tax office. I'd already been doing taxes for a few, couple of years. Uh, during the winter and doing survey work during the summer. Came full-time here to work at the office and I've been doing taxes ever since. Uh, I became an enrolled agent, um, which is somebody who can represent taxpayers to the IRS with a power of attorney, whether they've, whether I prepared your taxes or not. If you had a problem, if you got those IRS letters, I could work with the IRS on your behalf. So just to speak their language, play in their sandbox, use their rules to best represent you. Wow, that's pretty diverse background there. Before we talk about anything about tax, tell me about the Navy. So this nuclear engineer thing, where I'm nuclear engineering, were you on aircraft carriers, submarines, what, what kind of? Uh, so aircraft carriers, and um, I trained actually on a submarine um, prototype, which is a inactive submarine. Um, but uh, the nuclear power portion is really more about providing ships power. Whether a ship has boilers or nuclear reactors, it generate, it's used to generate electricity, propel the ship through the water, make fresh water, um, and just provide that power to the ship. Um, so engineering, I, I was a mechanic pretty good mechanic, or you could say I was a glorified plumber. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, who made those uh, reactors on the ships, do you remember? So the ones that I worked on mostly were General Electric. General Electric, because yep. my uncle, he designed nuclear power plants for submarines, and he worked for Westinghouse. Yep. And uh, so he had passed away, but he, he lived on the East Coast. He would come and visit us every couple of years uh, because they were sending him to somewhere around here, I guess, uh, Mare Island, maybe, I don't really know, to, uh, to uh, I don't know, work on the reactors. He would hang them out for like a week or two and then and then go back. He did that for several uh, several years. So uh, that's really cool. You know, I had another client uh, up in Ben Lomond, and uh, he worked on, he, he was on submarines for a good long time, like 15 years, something like that, in the Navy. And he had many, you know, interesting experiences in the Navy. Have you been all over the world then? Have you? I have just about circumnavigated the globe in the Navy. Um, I've been across both uh, into the, um, across the equator and across the, the uh, into the North Atlantic. Um, the best place that I'd say I'd ever been to is Israel. Really? Um, we spent a couple weeks in Israel. People were wonderful. I took tours, made it into um, Jerusalem, um, and also we didn't get to go to Bethlehem. 
That's because they were fighting and shooting <laughs> it was a war in the streets the in Bethlehem. Uh, every it, it taped off. Every <laughs> single citizen in Israel becomes part of the military. It's mandatory enlistment. Two years for for women. Um, I think it's three to five years for men. When a young military member goes home to visit their family, they take their M16 or whatever rifle it is with them. If they're still active duty, they're always active duty. Uh, The tour guide that we had was a reservist officer. He was required to always wear his sidearm uh, when he wasn't in his home because if he was activated, he was activated immediately. Uh, so it's a very different culture. I never felt as safe. I never felt that safe anywhere else in the world. Um, and the people are wonderful. The people are very accepting. And for people to be that accepting is just, it was just a blessing. Being there and going and seeing all of the places um, went to uh, where they had Sermon on the Mount, went to the Jordan River. Huge catfish in the Jordan River, by the way. So, um, yeah, it was a wonderful experience. How was the hummus? I did not have hummus, but I did have the roasted lamb that they oh, shear yes, off. Oh, yes, right. Yeah. That was exquisite, probably. Wonderful, wonderful. wonderful. Yeah, my uh, my brother went to Israel like in like 1980 in the San Francisco Boys Force. They did a tour, and... Uh, he had a tremendous time. He's been back several times. He works at Intel, and they have some fabs down there or whatever. So he's been back several times. But as a kid growing up, I remember his favorite story was that they had a bodyguard when wherever they went in Israel, and he said our bodyguard slept with a gun under his pillow, and that must have been very exciting for like a ten or eleven year old kid to uh, to see that. But yeah, everyone's armed to the teeth. They don't have a problem with mass shootings in Israel, really, even though everyone has a gun. It's uh, Kind of a different culture, I guess, than uh, than we have here. Definitely a different culture. We didn't spend the night out. We took bus tours, okay, and then back to our ship. All right, because our ship was in port there, so we had our own place to stay, spend the night. Right. Well, that's good. So uh, that's awesome. Um, I would love to go to Israel. I never have gone. A friend of mine is talking about going there for his fiftieth um, birthday, and that would be like I guess next year. And uh, I would love to be able to uh, go to Israel because I hear it's wonderful. My uncle's been there. My brother's been there several times. It sounds like an amazing, amazing place to visit. And so much history, you know? I mean, that's I'm kind of a history buff, and uh, I, I think I could just really have an amazing uh, time in, in Israel. So you are an enrolled agent. Now, how long have enrolled agents been? Speaking about history, <laughs> how yes. long have enrolled agents been around? Is this like a new thing, or has this been going on for a while? Enrolled agents have been around since the Civil War. Uh, after the Civil War... There was a lot of turmoil with people wanting their stuff back that had been utilized. Their horses, their land, their, you know, people's crops had been used to feed the troops. And the government wanted a central representative to be able to represent people to the government for compensation. And so everything was monetized. You know, what was the value of the horse? What was the value of the crops? And so that way, the government could all, could compensate people for what was used or return what was used, um, but also put values on it. 
as the tax laws came into effect, those same enrolled agents, they're enrolled to represent taxpayers to the IRS. So to say that this is taxable, this is not taxable, how much tax is owed, enrolled agents have always been a part of that system, but they're the part of the system that is looking after the benefit of the taxpayer, not the government. So you are a, um, you have like a fiduciary relationship with your clients and you can act kind of as them, as an attorney almost, but for taxes, is that? That is correct. There, um, we, we get power of attorney. Um, if, the, if somebody is being collected on by the Internal Revenue Service, by any of the 50 states, uh, we can directly represent that person and make agreements for that person, get information for that person, negotiate for that person in order to reach, um, not, it's not a settlement, it's, it's in order for the person to become compliant. Compliance means that we know the rules that the IRS goes by, Franchise Tax by Board goes by, and those rules allow for people to pay their taxes, but they also allow them to live their life. If you can't pay all of your taxes right away, you're still allowed to have a house. You're still allowed to eat. You're still allowed to travel. You're still allowed to pay for medical. And so if you don't have enough money for all of that, you're allowed to have a budget and then pay your taxes out of what's left. And if that's not enough to pay your entire, your entire tax liability, that's okay, but as long as you still make payments that you agree on, you're in compliance. So being in compliance doesn't necessarily mean you're paying everything that has been calculated. That's the goal, and you're supposed to keep up, but it doesn't always work Just out that you're way. Just square with the IRS. Yep. You, you, you've come into compliance. So what? why would someone go to an enrolled agent versus like a, a CPA? Is there, what's... And CPA is a certified public accountant. CPAs train to do audits of major corporation financials. CPAs, some CPAs do specialize in tax. Um, enrolled agents concentrate in tax solely. Um, tax, including representation that we were talking about, um, whereas a CPA may or may not. Uh, and even in the tax realm, there are some clients that I refer to other enrolled agents. Sometimes I refer them to attorneys depending on how much trouble they're in um, because of their specialties. Uh, there are numerous different types of taxes. If we look at trust tax returns. A trust, the very first seminar that I ever took for trusts, there was an attorney that gave the seminar. And at the beginning of the seminar, he said, how many people here prepare trust tax returns? Two thirds of the room put their hands up. And he said, I could take 95% of you to court and sue you and win. And then he proceeded to tell us and demonstrate how many different ways a trust, one trust can be different from another trust, legally in wording and everything else, just so that we would understand 
that we have to be very careful in what we're doing in preparing a trust. It's just like a partnership agreement. If you have a partner and you do your have a partnership tax return, but you don't have anything in writing, there's nothing solid. You know, if it's not in writing, it's, you know, I learned that in the military. If it's not written down, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> Good point. Uh, yeah, I, I've uh, experienced that as well. Yeah, everything in writing. And I'm glad you mentioned trusts because I am kind of in the process of setting up a trust for myself. Um, you know, we have a house and, um, you know, people who own houses should have a trust. Is that, is that fair to say? Is that Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Why should you have a trust if you own a house? So if you have assets, and we'll talk more about assets, but if you have assets, if whether it's a house, you have a car, you have stock, you should have a trust. The reason being is, is a trust helps move your assets to where they belong. Um, a trust can also protect your assets. If you, do you have kids? Yes. How many? Two. Okay. Do your kids have kids? No, they are young. They are 8 and 10. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Um, so if you want your kids to use your house after you pass away, you'd put that in your trust. If you want your kids to sell the house, you put that in the trust. If you want one kid to have the house and another kid to have all of your stock in IBM, you'd put that in your trust. A trust is better than a will. A trust, if, if you have your things in a trust, now you have to put your house in the trust. Just having a trust does not mean the same thing as funding a trust. A funding a trust means you go down to the county assessor's office and you say, okay, I'm transferring the title of my house to my trust. But the trust will designate what happens with your stuff with your assets when you pass away. You're married, you have a wife, what happens if one of you passes away? You know, do the kids all of a sudden get the house? Or does the wife keep the house until she passes away? Um, and it helps prevent probate, or excuse me, avoid probate. If you only have a will, that means that the court system has to approve what happens to your stuff. So your beneficiaries still have to go to court to say this is what we're doing with everything and the judge still ha has to say yes okay that's fine do that if there's other parties that start asking well wait a minute what about us you know we're I'm, I'm his brother I helped buy that house so therefore I get part of the house well that could cause a lot more legal fees so a trust helps uh, prevent that and so that way, a trust can just, you've got the trust, these things go to those people, roger that, and it, and it goes forth. So it is a much more substantial document. And you also avoid the uh, probate fees, right? So like if I die, you know, and then a house isn't in a trust, my, my wife and I die in a plane crash or whatever, and then our kids are not on the plane. So... Uh, Normally, if we didn't have a trust, they have to go through probate, right? And the probate fees could be $30,000, dollars I mean, they, the, they're substantial, right? The probate fees can be dependent upon the 
size of your truck right, of your assets size, of, size right. of your estate right you don't and you avoid all those fees that's or right almost all those fees uh, if you have it in a trust but now do I have to file a tax return every year if I have a trust you do not file a tax return for the trust you're talking about some trusts do file a tax return every year a special needs trust um, but your trust is simply the trust in the name of yourself and your wife and as long as yourself and your wife are still filing your own tax returns, all of your income, all of your expenses is yours, even if your stockbroker account or your rental property is in the name of the trust, all of that income and expenses flows through your tax return like it always has. No, nothing special to do. But a trust will actually say, upon this person's passing or upon that person's passing, this is the steps to take. Most trusts would say, you know, when Sebastian dies, because, well, you're the guy, and you're probably going to die first. <laughs> I'm sure of it. <laughs> so when, when you die, your wife has the benefit of everything. Everything still goes on her tax return. Right. There's no must. There's no fuss. It's just like automatic. No, yeah. not even questioned by anybody. That's correct. Right. Some trusts are a little more complicated. Okay. If if I was on my second marriage, and my house that you helped me buy, thank you very much, up in Brookdale, um, was owned by my first wife and myself, maybe when I die my first wife gets the house and it goes solely to her and I release that part of the house or the house gets sold and my first wife gets half and my second wife gets half of the proceeds. So when you have mixed families, a trust can help guide the actions to take when certain events happen. Um, so they're even more important as your assets get larger, as the families get mixed as they as they do. Right. Okay. Now, thank you so much for that. I, I appreciate that. I'm glad to hear I don't have to uh, file a tax return for my trust. Because when you said that, tax return for the trust, I was like, oh, great. Like another another piece of paperwork I have to like worry about. So um, tell me about this enrolled agent thing a little bit more. Um, how does one become an enrolled agent? Do you have to go to school or class, or what's the certification process like? So the certification process to become an enrolled agent is is a lot of education. We have to um, go through a seventy two hour classes, um, both on 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 individual tax law, on estates and trusts, corporations, um, and on ethics. We uh, um, what fines and penalties the Internal Revenue Service can can impose, and after going through this education, there is a three part exam that is administered um, for the IRS, not by the IRS anymore, but it's for the IRS. Uh, that exam used to actually be a four part exam, and you would go in at the beginning of the day and do two hours for every single part. But you would have to take all four parts 
on the same day, and they would only give it once every six months. <laughs> so if you didn't pass them all, you'd have to come back in six months and try again. Um, the exam's in three parts. They kind of consolidated a little bit. You have to take the exams. You have to be able to pass all three sections of the exam within a two-year period. Once you become an enrolled agent, education does not stop. Uh, you have to have education hours every single year, ethics hours every single year. Currently this year I am up to 74 hours of continuing education, both in about 12 hours, 8 hours worth of webinars, and the rest has been in-person um, in seminars in classroom. Yeah. So that, that, that brings me to my next question is that, you know, things change a lot all the time. It seems like the tax rules change every, do they change every year? I mean, every year there's new rules. I mean, every year something changes. I have clients often that say, well, it's the same. Can't you just use last year's numbers? And even if everything you did was exactly the same, you would not have the same tax return because there's always inflation adjustments that happen. Um, there's always precedents that change. Presidents bring in their tax reforms. There's, we're in the middle of a huge tax reform that changed 2017 versus 2018 drastically. That's one thing I would love to talk about is the um, Tax Cut and Growth Job Act. What was it called? Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Act uh, Trump that was passed in a very short period of time with very little discussion <laughs> and then became law on January 1st, 2018. What are some of the biggest like things that happened in that uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act that like homeowners or would-be homeowners need to know about that maybe they weren't aware of? Can you give me like three or four biggies? So the TCJA, as we love to TCJA, put everything... Oh, there's even an acronym for it. There is Industry, an acronym. Yeah. There's acronyms for everything. <laughs> uh, almost as many as there were in the military. So, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act drastically changed how tax returns flow for most of America. There are multiple parts of that Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but we're going to talk about homeowners a little bit. And we'll talk about homeowners, we'll talk a little bit about people with kids too. Okay, because how many kids you have now kind of changes um, how your tax return changed also. Um, itemized in, in your tax return, and I'm going to talk a little bit technical here. The first part of a tax return is income. Total up all your income, that's your adjusted gross income. The second part of your tax return um, is deductions. Now in the first part, there are some adjustments to income, but I'm leaving those out. Deductions historically have been a deduction that has either been known as the standard or itemized deductions, and there's also an exemption deduction. The first one I'm gonna talk about is the exemption deduction. The exemption deduction historically has been X number of dollars per person in your household. Yourself, your wife, your two kids. You fill out okay. your W-2 and they say, how many exemptions are you taking? Exactly. That's the same relationship. So there was a year, a couple years back, where that 
exemption deduction was exactly $4,000 per person, which means you would take $16,000 for that deduct for that exemption deduction for a family of four off of your income and you would not have to pay tax on that. Got okay. It. So the exemption deduction still exists. But the amount for the exemption deduction for 2018 through 2025 is zero. <laughs> it's very generous. <laughs> okay, so so now let's talk about, this is backwards order, but now let's talk about whether you take either standard or itemized deductions. Okay, so exemption and deductions. So the exemption deduction went to zero, but they took the standard deduction, which is basically the minimum that any person or tax return receives. There was always a standard deduction, right? There There's always, always been a standard deduction. So the standard deduction when exemption amounts were $4,000 for one person was a little bit more than $6,000. Okay, So you would get $6,000 of standard deduction. You'd get $4,000 for your exemption, just you all by yourself, no wife and kids, we're not gonna confuse that just yet. So you'd get about 10,600 bucks, okay? Just below 11,000. Now, the standard deduction for a single person is $12,000. So you lost $4,000 in one spot, but you gained a little bit more than that in the other spot. So the deductions didn't go down, they moved, they shifted. However, and the same thing happened for a married couple. You know, it used to be 11,000, now it's 24,000. So you lost $8,000 worth of exemption deductions because it was two times 4,000, but you gained more than that on your standard deduction. So that deduction shifted. But when you start adding kids in there, which is another 4,000 and another 4,000, you lost $16,000 worth of exemption deductions because of four people in your household, but you didn't gain $16,000 on your standard deduction. Okay. The other thing, that, the next thing that changed. Okay, so that's the standard deduction. You can either take the standard deduction, which now for a married couple for yourself is $24,000, or you can take itemized deductions. Itemized deductions is where you say how much did I pay in charity? How much did I pay in mortgage interest? How much did I pay in property tax? Um, and then there's a miscellaneous category at the bottom and there's medical at the top. We're going to ignore miscellaneous and medical. Those are not the big ones. We're going to talk about charity. If you give to charity, the value of what you give to charity, whatever cash or everything, that's deductible. Never changed, still the same. Your mortgage interest, your mortgage interest that you can claim, if you already had a house, still the same. Your property tax and your state taxes that you pay, that is now limited to $10,000. So if your property taxes were $15,000 and you paid $5,000 to California, for state taxes, that's $20,000, you, you lost half of that. So you used to be able to deduct $20,000 of your income, and now you can only deduct $10,000 for that category. For that category of exactly. exactly. Right. So that was a big change. It's not as drastic as it sounds, though. 
it's not as drastic as it sounds because the tax rates also changed. For people in California who pay alternative minimum tax, um, alternative minimum tax is a, it's a second tax calculation that changes the different things that you can deduct, uses different tax rates, and comes up with a different answer. And if that answer is higher than the tax that you would pay using the normal calculation, the difference is added onto your tax. So, but the calculation for alternative minimum tax also changed. So there was a lot of people in California, especially in this area, that were paying alternative minimum tax, which was an extra tax, that no longer pay that extra tax. So their tax may have gone up in one place and come down in another. The end result or the end conclusion is you have to do the math. There's absolutely no way for me to say that everybody's taxes got better or everybody's taxes got worse because it's not true. There are some people whose taxes got better. There are some people whose taxes got worse. And there's actually a large number of people whose taxes didn't change very much at all. Just the way it was calculated shifted around. So <clears throat> when they were passing this thing, I remember uh, was the guy Paul Ryan was like, you can do your taxes now on a postcard, right? And but. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> remember that? <laughs> and you're like, oh, great. So, but, but that's not true because you really have to calculate it twice. You have to say, do I take the standard deduction or do I itemize, right? In order to answer that question, you have to run your taxes through as if you, you know, to itemize them all out and then, and then figure out which one is better for you, standard or itemized. Well, I have to say that they did make the tax return shorter. The tax return used to be on two pages. They took it and put it on one page. However, in order to do that, all of the things that I kind of skimmed over that I said, well, we have adjustments here and we have this kind of deduction there, you have a business or you have a rental, all of those categories moved from the regular tax form onto separate schedules. They created six new schedules or six new pages that may or may not be needed on your tax return in order to take what was on two pages and squish it down to one page. Right. So, um, so yes, it's a postcard. <laughs> it's a postcard. So uh, when all this CCJA was going through, the California Association of Realtors, they were all up in arms because they were saying, hey, uh, you know, like people are not going to be able to take as many deductions now as they were previously because of the cap on the state and local taxes, which in California, Silicon Valley, very, very high, right? You might be paying $20,000 a year in property tax. You might be paying, you know, $15,000 a year in California tax. Mortgage interest might be another $20,000. Who knows? That might be fifty or 60000 but now you can only take a $25,000 deduction as your standard, you know, like that's, it's capped, right? Well, I'm conflating these things, but it's capped. What have you seen now that you've been doing taxes now for 2018, right? So 2018, that deadline is now passed, so all those taxes are filed. Have you seen that, like your same clients now, typical homeowner maybe in, you know, Alma Den or someplace, are they paying more tax? Are they paying less tax on average? What, what have you noticed? So the interesting thing is, is yes, 
it's it, the new homeowners are the ones that are hit the worst. Uh, and they're hit the worst because of the limit on home value that is... So, so you pay interest on your mortgage. Mortgage interest is deductible. Historically, prior to this, and also for California, you can buy a house for a million dollars or up to a million dollars and deduct all of the interest you pay on that loan. So if you have a loan for a million dollars. Now, for the Internal Revenue Service, if you purchased your house after January 1st of 2018, that amount is actually limited to $750,000. So you can only deduct the interest on a $750,000 loan, all of your loans combined for your main house. This doesn't affect rentals. Rental property is still a business. You can deduct all of the mortgage interest that you have on that rental property. So maybe you have some planning to do. Some people call me up and say, which loan do I pay off? And I look at their tax return. And a lot of them, the one I talked to just yesterday who is looking at selling one of their three rentals and paying off their main home, is doing the right thing. They're going to pay off their main home because that interest does not benefit them as much as it used to. Um, the taxes. The interesting thing is, is those same people who were hurt by not being able to deduct state taxes and property taxes on their tax return, a lot of that was from state income taxes and that alternative minimum tax that I was talking about actually put those state taxes back into the calculation. So there were a lot of the median ones where their regular tax went up, their AMT, alternative minimum tax, went down, another acronym. So their tax liability, their total tax at the end was less. Not everybody though. Um, there are definitely people who work and, and have high executive positions whose W-2s, whose wages are coming in in the high sixes, low seven figures. And there are people that did pay twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 more in tax. It's everything's individual. Everything's just, there is no dividing line for income purposes. The higher you go in income, but the, the more likely it is you're going to pay more tax, period. Um, so it's, it's been a lot of going back and forth. The one thing that did happen, which was very interesting, is because the tax reform said, hey, everybody's taxes are going to be lower, those people who have jobs, who just get their taxes taken out automatically, those federal taxes that were taken out automatically were taken out at a lower percentage. So there were people that had to pay at the end of the year, not because their taxes went up, but because their withholding went down. They had less tax, total tax, withheld from their pay, not because of anything they did, but because the government changed the tax tables. 
Right, right. Yeah, a lot of people basically had lowered less money taken out, and they owed more money at tax time, and they were surprised by that. So is there anything like the savvy, um, high-income person can do to like lower their taxes under this new TC Tax Cut and Jobs Act thing? Like, for example, this whole thing, business pass-through income or whatever, right? I mean, like, is that, you know what I'm talking about? So there is another thing that is totally separate from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but California has come up with a new definition of employee versus contractor. It's a lot more restrictive. It really closes the window on who can legally be a contractor. And and so there were a lot of people going, well, I'm just going to start my own business, get my income that way, and take a whole bunch of deductions. That's fine if you have a legitimate business and you're running it as a business, but if you... If you're doing real estate and you're in an, a real estate office, and that's a and that's what they do, you're an employee. If I'm doing taxes, and I'm let's say I'm just a tax preparer in this office, and it's not my company, it's not our family business, I'm just a tax preparer. But that's what the office does. Well, that means I'm an employee, not a contractor. Um, I can't just be a contractor because I feel like it and deduct things that are not ordinary and necessary business expenses. Doing real estate, you have ordinary and necessary expenses. You have to drive places to show houses. You have to pay for fees for transactions. You have to pay for your license. You have to pay for a whole bunch of stuff. That's all still just as much a business expense as it always has been. Um, I've seen a lot of people try to manipulate the whole Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Now we have this special business deduction, so I want to take advantage of that. It hasn't worked out very well for many people, um, unless they actually do have, run a business. If you run a business, take every expense you possibly can. Keep track of your income, keep track of your expenses, keep good records. That's the biggest thing any business person can do is make sure they have a good record-keeping system that makes sense to them. Because ultimately, if somebody says, where did this expense come from, that person has to be able to produce the canceled check, the credit card statement, the receipt, whatever, and it has to be reasonable. Right. Got it. Okay, so um, what about like um, like capital gains, like calculating capital gains? Like this is a, a big issue for a lot of people because when they sell their houses, they have gigantic capital gains. So like you buy a house for five hundred and you sell it for a million, but in the interim time period, you've had some expenses, right? So um, like you can deduct the commission and all that, or your cost of sale out of your capital gains. But like, what if I like? remodel my house or put on a new roof. Um, are those things that add to your your tax basis to diminish your capital gains or and then but the maintenance is not deductible, right? So like what's a, what's a, what's the dividing line between maintenance and capital improvement? Maintenance and capital improvement. Okay, so the answer is capital gains whether you're talking about a house or stock um, an asset, you're buying an asset at some point in time, you're selling it at some other point in time. Uh, those are still treated the same. 
California, no special treatment. If it's capital gains, it's at the same tax rate that California taxes everything else at. For federal purposes, if you've owned something more than a year, when you sell it, if it's a capital asset, that the gain that you have to pay tax on, which is basically the difference between what you bought it for and what you sold it for. I bought a house for 500000 I sell it for a million, which means I have $500,000 of capital gain. That, if that, that $500,000 is taxed at a lower tax rate if I've held onto that house for more than a year. When you're talking specifically about a house, you have to differentiate between whether it's a rental or a business investment or your main house. One nice thing that the IRS gives us and California conforms is they give us an allowance that of a, an amount that we don't have to pay taxes on. As long as we've lived in that house for at least two years, two out of the last five. Uh, so you buy your house for 500000 you live in it for one year, 11 months, and sell it, you're going to pay tax on that 500000 if you sell it for a million. Wait another month, and you and your wife have this house, you and your wife sell the house, you each get a $250,000 exclusion that you don't have to pay tax on, which means the house that you bought for 500000 and you sold for a million, three years later, two years, one day later, you don't have to pay any tax on that first $500,000 of gain. If during the interim you did capital improvements, a capital improvement is something that increases the value of your house that was not there before. If you had a fence going around your yard when you moved in and the fence deteriorates over time and you replace the fence, that's not an improvement, that's a repair. If you never had a fence to begin with and you put in a fence line, that's an improvement. Uh, if you painted the house, that's a repair. And a roof, a roof, like you had a roof before, so a roof is not a capital improvement. That's roof is not a capital improvement. Now, if you move into a house and it's been up in the Santa Cruz Hills, under the Redwoods, getting all kinds of moisture, and you have to replace the roof right when you move in, then I would call that a capital improvement because the roof was destroyed, destroyed when you walked right. in. It was part right. of what it you no needed value. to do. It had no value. Um, so my house, within the year, I replaced water heater, I replaced the stove. They were just old when I moved in. Right. You know, no so I kept track of that. Right. But there's things that I've done since that is just because I wanted to, you know, or painting and yeah, carpeting and that that I'm not keeping track of. Well, that's very interesting, Chris. So, like, what I mean, are there IRS regulations about this, or like, is this just like the art of tax preparation, shall we say? That this is closer to the art of tax preparation. Um, the Internal Revenue Service is uh, does not give clear definition on many different things. Um, this is one of those areas. You know, buy, build, or improve. That's the, the terms they use for a loan. You know, buy, build, or improve. Improve 
is something that increases the value of the house. It's a capital improvement compared to basically what it was when you moved in. If you move in and the paint is just fine, the value may go down because the paint's crap in 10 years and you repaint it. That didn't really improve it based on the condition it was when you first bought it. So, like, uh, like, let's just say you move in, you have linoleum floors in your house, and you live with the linoleum floors for five years, and then you decide to replace it with lovely hardwood floors. That's a capital improvement. That's not maintenance, right? Maybe there were holes in the floor before, and now you have lovely, you know, Brazilian mahogany or whatever. That's a right. capital improvement. That's I would say so. Right. Because, okay. and a lot of people will say, I didn't keep good records. And I tell that person, I said, Go walk through your house. Look, I have pictures from our house when, um, that from before we bought it. I actually still have the listing pictures. Right. And I can go walk through my house and I can say, wait a minute, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. And those materials cost something. You know, or you had a contractor come in and tear out your kitchen, put in all new kitchen. Now, that's a capital improvement. Right. You do do a remodel. If you tear down the entire house, leaving one wall, <laughs> like I've seen done in Willow Glen, and rebuild the house around it, that's definitely a capital improvement. Uh, Got it. So, so now, investment property. So investment property, let's just say I'm uh, somebody, I said, you know what, I want to have uh, just a rental house, you know, um, and now I'm going to have a rental house. Now, what can you deduct on your rental house? You have depreciation. You can deduct depreciation, and you can deduct mortgage interest, right? Because that's considered to be like a business expense, or how does that work? Like, if you're not, like, you have to be actively managing it as a property manager. I'm a little fuzzy on that part. Like, I know I get to because I'm a full-time real estate professional, but if you're, like, a software engineer and you buy a rental house, what all can you deduct? So a rental house is treated by the IRS like any other business. And the IRS has a phrase that they use, and that phrase is ordinary and necessary. If the expense for your business, rental house, any business that you're running, is an ordinary expense for that business, and it's necessary to do that business, it's an expense against that business income. Um, rentals have a few more rules thrown in. Um, that is, yes, you get to take depreciation. Depreciation is where you take the value of the structure and claim that as an expense over 27 and a half years, which means you buy a house for, let's say we're still talking our $500,000 house. Let's say, well, the land here, we're here in California, so the land is worth 300000 and the the structure is worth 200,000. You take the 200,000, divide it by 27 and a half, and you get that much of an expense each year. You still get to take your property tax, your mortgage interest, your insurance, your repairs, supplies, if you're running a bed and breakfast, um, and, and take all of those things that you spend on that house and claim that as an expense. Now, one thing you don't get to claim as an expense, you get a house in Palm Beach and it's on a golf course and 
because it's on the golf course, you pay membership fees to that country club. As a overwhelming general rule, the Internal Revenue Service does not allow country club fees, even though they're required by the country club, to be taken against your rental. All right, so uh, now, but let's just say, but, let's just say you're making 200 grand a year, and you buy this, this house, right? And then you uh, are making, you're renting the house out for five grand a month, 60 grand a year in income. And against that, you can deduct not the principal payments, but the mortgage interest, and you can deduct the depreciation and any other expenses that you may incur. But if those expenses, if those deductions exceed the rental amount, you can't then take that deduction against your own personal salary, right? Like so, like you can only deduct as much income as you're getting. Is that so? You can't transfer that across. If you were making two hundred thousand dollars a year, that is a correct statement. Okay. There is a line, and it's different depending on your filing status, so I'm not even going to give a number, but there is a line, actually it's a range, where above a certain point, if you have negative income from your rental property or properties, um, if, if you have three rental properties and you have a positive 5,000, a positive 5,000, and a negative 15,000, the two positive 5,000s would net against a negative 15,000 and your net would be a negative 5,000, okay? So that negative 5,000, if, if you are receiving $200,000 of income on your W-2, that negative 5,000 you would not be able to claim on your tax return that year. It would still be part of your tax return and it would be what's called a loss carryover, which means for 2018, that negative 5,000, that $5,000 loss would go forward into 2019. And then if the net income from all three rentals ended up being $5,000, you could use that negative 5,000 from the prior year to offset the current year's positive. If you had positive 4,000 in 2019, you had a negative 5,000 from 2018, you offset the positive four thousand, and you still have another thousand dollars lost to carry forward. Conversely, if your income is low enough, you can take up to a twenty-five thousand dollar loss against your ordinary income from rental real estate. Ah, interesting. So let's just say I've owned a rental property and I've been depreciating it for ten years, right? So ten every, for every ten years, I'm taking seven and a half thousand dollar deduction. Uh, because of depreciation after 10 years at 75 grand. How does that affect my taxes when I go to sell the property? I mean, do I have to pay that back or how, how does that work? So you're, you've been claiming depreciation. You claimed 7,000 over 10 years, so you have $70,000 worth of depreciation claimed. Um, if you paid, let's go real simple. Let's say you paid $100,000 for the piece of property. Okay. Uh, Madeira. Some, somewhere out in the Central <laughs> Valley. Okay. Right? So you bought it for $100,000 and you've depreciated $70,000 of that. So now you're, you've expensed all but $30,000 of what you bought it for. You go to sell it and you sell it for $200,000. You take the $200,000 and then 
you subtract the 30,000 of what's left. You bought it for 100, you depreciated or you expensed 70,000 of that. $30,000 of that purchase price is left. Subtract that from the 200,000. Now you have $170,000 worth of profit to pay tax on. If in the same instance, you still had a $5,000 loss carryover, that would also go against your profit. So now it's instead of 130,000, excuse me, 170,000, now you're down to 165,000. So when you sell that piece of property, if you have not been able to claim your losses, if there's anything left in that carryover bucket, in the year that you sell that piece of property, you get to take the losses against your profits. So it's not something that you totally lose. Okay, yeah, this is very complicated. I think I need to it talk is. to the tax guy about this, but one last question here, uh, and that is, let's just say you are buying like a uh, ocean view condo uh, down by the beach, right? And you're gonna use it as a vacation rental, right? And, um, but you're gonna use it sometimes yourself. Now, is that a property held for investment purposes or is that your second home? All right, I'm going to give you the tax preparer answer for that. Okay. It depends. <laughs> Talk to your tax preparer. As long as you spend less than 14 days using the property for yourself, then it is still treated like a regular rental property income and expenses. If you use it for more than 14 days personal use, then it becomes a math calculation. Um, and you don't get all of the expenses. You still have to claim all the income, but you don't get all of the ex a full portion on the expenses. I'm gonna talk about a couple of special things here. Number one, you have a main house. Your main house is in Santa Clara. Your main house is in Santa Clara, and guess what happens? Super Bowl comes to Santa Clara. Right. Okay? And you have absolutely no desire to be anywhere near Santa Clara during the Super Bowl. So you're like, I'm I'm out. I'm gonna go down to Mexico. Southern California. I'm gonna go to Pismo Beach. I'm going somewhere else. I'm gonna come to Santa Cruz because we love you in Santa Cruz. And so you decide you're gonna rent out your house for a week while you're gone. Because there's so many people coming to Santa Clara you can rent your house out for ten grand for the week because people want need a place to hang out during the Super Bowl. You just made ten grand you don't have to pay taxes on. Really? Wow. You can rent out your main home for up to fourteen days during a year, and that income does not count anywhere. Interesting. Strange, completely weird rule. Wow. So if I go on a European vacation for two weeks, I can rent my house out for two weeks, and that's just free money. Free money. So everyone should do that. Everyone should go to vacation for two weeks out of the year. Check your homeowner's <laughs> insurance and see how much it's going to cost to have other people staying in your house. First, check with your tax preparer, your tax professional, before you start messing with anything like that and going, here, I heard this on a podcast. Right. So, Chris, i got to confess... I talk about this stuff fairly frequently, but a lot of this just went over my head. Now, what, I, what I'm coming away with really is that I really, like, I don't have any hope, I don't think, as an ordinary mere mortal to, to like, really <laughs> understand 
hardly any of this. And, you know, I think that, you know, I mean, I, I have a guy, but, you know, uh, a lot of people don't have guys. You're a guy who does this. How do people, like, get a hold of you? Because it sounds like you've you got it going on. You know, what, you know what the score is. How do people get a hold of you if they need someone to help them with all this? My recommendation, so my recommendation is find somebody close to you. Physically close. Physically. Somebody whose office you can walk into. Somebody you can relate to. Somebody you can trust. Um, because it's a large part of your life. It's going to be an intimate relationship you're having with these people. So there are several organizations. Uh, there is the California Society of Enrolled Agents. C-S-E-A dot O-R-G dot org. California Society of Enrolled Agents. There is also National Association of Enrolled Agents, N-A-E-A dot org. Um, both of these organizations, both of these websites, have a tool on them known as Find an E-A, Find an Enrolled Agent. Um, and you can use that tool by zip code, by last name because of a referral. You can go on Yelp. You can go on, what's, I've been found by my website just because of a Google listing. I've been found by uh, the, the next, next door app. Yes. Um, I've been, I get my clients 90 some odd percent by word of mouth referrals. And that's because in the business that I'm in, in this business, if my clients trust me, they're going to come back next year. If they need me. Some of them don't need me. Sometimes I tell people that come in the door, listen, your stuff is simple or your son's stuff is simple. Have them go to the IRS website. Have them go to the Franchise Tax Board website because if your income is low enough, you can use a Volunteer Income Tax Assistance, VITA Center, or you can use the free e-file systems that both of them have on their websites. But when you have something that you need help with, find somebody that you can trust, and the best way to find somebody you can trust is ask other people who they use. Um, that's how I get 90-some-odd percent of my clients. It's, it's word of mouth. My location's wonderful. Yeah, right on the corner. It's easy to find. So uh, on the web, though, you are uh, Grindy, what, what is it? GrindyTax.com. That's very simple. It is very simple. G-R-I-N-D-Y-T-A-X.com. Um, so are you like, are, you, so are there other people to talk to here in the office besides you? I mean, like if somebody wanted, like walking down the street... They said, hey, help me with my taxes. Will they talk to you or are there other people here who can help them? Most of the time, they don't get to talk to me. <laughs> uh, I have over 300 clients myself. Um, I have special projects that I'm working on to try to help people come into compliance. Uh, we have six tax preparers here at the Ooh, office. Wow, wow. Um, we have uh, four of our tax preparers are enrolled agents. Two of our tax preparers preparers are California registered tax preparers. Also means they're registered in California. They've taken a 60 hour class. They take continuing education at all as well, excuse me. And um, one of those two 
she's very, very happy sticking with California registered, doing California tax returns for the clients she has. The other one is simply a younger, a newer tax preparer. He's, he is excellent at listening and he's working on his enrolled agent. But like I said, it takes a little bit of time. It takes some experience to become an enrolled agent. Um, have to pass all three tests to become an enrolled agent. So uh, we've got him busy, but Joe is who I filter almost all of my new clients through. He's here year round and he is a wonderful filter for people that I don't have to talk to because I need to be able to allocate my time well enough to where the special projects I was talking about, I can get those done. Sure. Well, with three hundred clients, I mean, that's a that's I mean, that's a tremendous amount of work. So uh, you are uh, your address here is uh, what, what's your address? Two two four seven Camden Avenue. Two two four seven Camden Avenue. Very centrally located, easy parking. And so if anybody's driving by Camden Avenue, take a look for Granny Tax Service. It's on the corner. And um, if you need any help with your taxes, just stop on in. Ring a bell, and there's good people here. Yeah. Check our website first. Check Give us a call. Uh, during tax season, we're here a lot, but we're seeing clients. We take appointments. We schedule all of our stuff via appointments. When it's not tax season, we reduce our hours so my people can get a break. Right. Um, actually, the worst time to talk to me is right after the April 15th deadline. And that's because right after the April 15th deadline, my brain is done <laughs> and I don't have anything left. Um, honestly, I, most of my staff take, take about a one-week vacation right after that April 15th deadline because they need the rest. Right. Um, and, but we're, we, we, we try to call people back as soon as possible. We try to email people back. Um, I'm a little bit of old school guy. I talk, I, I'd rather talk to you on the phone than bounce emails back and forth. Right, yes. Um, my, my daughter, who is up front, you know, and Joe, um, they you know, email, voicemail, talk to them on the phone. Their brains go a million miles a minute. Uh, I have a tendency to work through a problem one piece at a time, slightly meticulous, slightly OCD, um, I was the guy in math classes who would really upset the person who studied all week because I only studied for one day and got a better score. Right, right. <laughs> because he played all that Dungeons and Dragons. You know, you know, they they come out with studies now showing that people who play Dungeons and Dragons are like much better than everybody else. If <laughs> you're, if you're, that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that some of the people that I went to school with have produced several of the games that people play now or have, you know, have played before because this is where we're at. Um, it's the area that we're at. We've got Netflix down the street, eBay in the other direction, and, you know. You're in the heart of it. You're in the thick of it. We're in, we're in the heart of it, but uh, it's also given us a lot of exposure. One of my tax preparers, uh, the, the tax class that he went to, the tax class that I went to in the military, and then... Uh, I went military, then I went H&R Block, and, but those tax classes when, was when I was still attached to the military. I wasn't living in the Bay Area. I was living in the, in the Central Valley, so was the other tax preparer. And 
the people that taught us said, you'll never see this. You'll never see that. You'll never see this. And I could instruct them on so many different things about stock, about corporations, about trusts that they said I would never see that I'm getting asked questions about every single day by both clients and other tax preparers because there are some things that just have a huge amount of exposure to because we're here. Right, because you're here. All right, well, Chris, I know you're very busy. I really want to thank you so much for all your time. I really appreciate it. I learned a ton, and I'm sure that uh, my listeners have as well. Thank you very much for coming. All right, we'll catch you on the flip side. All right, bye. All right, that wraps up episode number 48 of the Beta Bay podcast. That sure was a whole ton of information. Uh, I think you might want to listen to this episode again a couple of times because there are so many nuggets that Chris dropped uh, about taxation there that uh, my head is still spinning. Uh, I know I'm going to go back and listen to it as well because there's all kinds of stuff that I learned. Um, so uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, listen, uh, as always, the Bay to Bay podcast is sponsored by thesoldbook.com. That's right. Go to thesoldbook.com to order your free copy of my book, Get It Sold. It's all about how you can quickly and easily sell your home for the very highest price possible and have a good time doing it. Now, this is a real book. You can go on to amazon.com and buy it. It's 13 bucks on amazon.com. It's got some great reviews. But if you were to go and go to thesoldbook.com, you can get it sent to you for free. And check it out. If you use the coupon code FREESHIP at checkout, that's F-R-E-E-S-H-I-P, use the coupon code FREESHIP at checkout, I'll even ship it to you for free. Now, what kind of a great deal is that? It's awesome. Go ahead, get the book. It's fun. It's easy. It's a quick read. It's only 110 pages, and I wrote every word myself. All right, that is it for this episode of the Bait to Bay podcast. I hope you've enjoyed listening, and I will have another episode up again before too long. Thank you.